Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Menno Henselmans back on the show, and we're digging into some controversy at the start because he recently shared a, a reel or a short where he essentially said, if your strength is stable whilst you're cutting, you are losing muscle. You heard that right. That is, if you're dieting and your strength isn't going up, you're not gaining performance, Menno thinks you very may well be losing muscle. I don't know if I completely agree with Menno on this, so I wanted to have a chat about this because I knew he'd have some further thoughts as you can only get so much out on like an Instagram reel, right? So we had a great dis- back and forth and uh, discourse surrounding that subject. And then we dug into a little bit surrounding protein sparing modified fasting and mini cuts and what Menno's approach is when it comes to this and how fast can you really go in terms of losing body fat slash body weight before we start actually eating into our muscle mass. So it was a really, really great chat here, much more to enjoy during in this episode and as a reminder guys this podcast only grows and we only get these amazing guests because people are interested in their listening so definitely be sure to share this with anyone you think might enjoy this give me a menno a tag over on instagram take a screenshot let us know that you're listening and as always make sure to be subscribed give us a comment give us a review we appreciate you so much so without further ado let's get into the chat Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Menno Henselmans back on the show. And to dig right into things, Menno, you had, uh, I, I don't know if this is controversial or not, I don't know if it was one of your more controversial posts, but it was one I saw, it was one of your reels, and it was like the the harsh reality of when you're dieting is essentially, if your strength is stable whilst cutting, you are losing muscle mass. And I think it took a number of people by like surprise and kind of, I guess that was where you were coming from. Like, this is the harsh reality as far as you're concerned. And even for myself, I was like, I don't know how much I completely agree with that. So I wanted to bring you on and chat deeper about that because I'm sure it's a little bit more nuanced than just like this black and white statement. I mean, you're not exactly a black and white type of guy. So I'd love to hear you kind of explain kind of your reasons for that. And then maybe we can dig into a little bit. Yeah, so the, the short version, just a 90 second real version, is that strength is the sum of your morphological, which is primarily size related adaptations. So the body can literally change in structure. And like I said, it's mostly the muscle getting bigger and therefore stronger. And then there are neural adaptations. And most strength development is neural. Like if you do any type of study and you quantify the degree of adaptation, what's the biggest contributory factor, you see that strength is mostly a neural phenomenon. It's only when you extrapolate it to the super long term that it becomes more of a science thing. Like when you look at powerlifters that are most likely capped out in every aspect, then you see, well, the only way to really get stronger at that point is you increase the size of the total engine. And even then, it's it's a little bit unclear if it's the increase within the individual or if it's just that more genetically blessed individuals are stronger. So... That's, that's, I think it's really good to keep in mind that you always have these two factors, broadly speaking. And therefore, when you're dieting, the, the neural factor in general, so basically assumption number two, is neural factor should always be positive. So whenever you're doing any type of movement, there's going to be an improvement in the coordination of that movement. Now, it's, it can be small, it can be big. If you're doing a new exercise, it's going to be very big. If you're a novice, it's going to be super big. If you're first time in the gym and you're first time you're doing a squat, it's going to be a massive neural component because your body's figuring out how to do it. If you've been bench pressing for 10 years, your PR hasn't changed in a long, long time, the neural component is going to be teeny tiny at some point. I mean, theoretically, it can even become zero, but you see that even in powerlifters that have been training for years, they are still making gains at the same body weight. So the neural component is clearly trainable for a long, long, long time, just very incrementally at a certain point. So if you know that you're dieting, you're losing weight, and your strength is stable, and we assume that the neural component is positive, then that must mean that the morphological component is negative, and especially if weight's also decreasing. Therefore, it basically follows that if you're not gaining any strength, no caveat incoming after this, then you must be losing size because the morphologi- there's a morphological loss that's compensating for the neurological improvement. And I think where many people kind of become confused in that is what, what do you quantify as strength? So what I have in mind with strength is essentially the sum of all of the lifts in your program. That's like your total strength. 
I think a lot of people think of it as like just that one exercise, like, oh, my bench press hasn't increased. Well, if your bench press hasn't increased and you've been training for 10 years with the bench press in your program, the, the entirety of those 10 years, then of course, that doesn't mean much that your bench press is, is still the same. Even It might even have been the same during, for during most of your bulk. However, if the total sum of all of that strength is actually not increasing, so you've had some exercises, presumably, that you haven't been doing for five years straight, and if those are also all, none of them are increasing, then yes, I think the harsh reality is you are losing um, size. And I think also a lot of advanced individuals in general are, you don't want to accept the reality that when you are cutting, you are almost inevitably losing some size. Like if I cut to counter shape, I am losing muscle for sure. I, um, it's impossible to maintain. In fact, I would argue that for anyone who is at their natural muscular potential or even enhanced potential, but given a certain hormone dose, you, you will inherently lose some muscle when you lose a significant amount of fat because research finds that you can maintain more muscle at higher body fat percentages. That's where the finding comes from that the most muscular individuals on the planet are actually sumo wrestlers, not bodybuilders. And that seems to be the case because, well, when you have that enormous amount of fat, you can also hold an enormous amount of muscle. And even though the ratio is really poor, evidently, and sumo wrestlers versus bodybuilders, the total amount of muscle is still better. And they would not be able to maintain that. It's not like if a sumo wrestler cut down to counter shape, they would, you know, crap on all the bodybuilders. So I think that's basically the um, the the message. And yeah, I do, I do definitely believe that, that a lot of people are a little bit too optimistic with their diets. So they feel like, oh, I must be maintaining muscle. If you're maintaining strength, then surely I'm maintaining my muscle mass. Probably not. I think that's really well explained because it, those little bits of added nuance there, I think make quite a big difference for people where it's like, hey, your level of skill with that movement is going to have a big kind of impact on this. Like you said, it's hard enough sometimes if you've been hack squatting for six months in a off season with everything going right to hit a PR, like in, mm -hmm. over that time, like you're still doing well as someone who's been training for a decade. So during a diet that might plateau, whereas there might be some stuff that you rotate in and out now and then where you are able to see these kind of neural adaptations. So kind of that strength component is that combination of size of the muscle and skill of the lifter. So if they're less skilled and their muscles maintaining, they should still be kind of gaining skill during that kind of diet phase, which I think makes a lot of sense. And it's also interesting to hear about kind of, uh, this is a question that I've had and I didn't know how much research there was really on it in terms of kind of the risk of muscle loss and how likely is it is it for you to lose muscle? So it seems like you think, particularly as you're getting kind of exotically lean, that the risk of muscle loss just increases quite heavily. Is that right? Yeah, so there's been a meta-analysis relatively recently that looked at the effect of energy deficit and weight loss on strength and muscle growth. And they found that strength development is actually not significantly affected, at least not in the short term, which really proves the point that most strength adaptation is neural. And the fact that you are getting strength does not actually mean you're getting muscle, let alone if strength is stable, right? Then there's a big chance that there is muscle loss. Again, strength being defined as the sum of all lifts. And I think part of the confusion is that people tend to, or like to think of their strength as their PR strength. And that is, that is very iffy because strength is, is, because it's so normal, it's very movement specific. So you can be, in, 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 I think most people will think of powerlifting strength as being strength. Whereas in reality, that just means you're good at the power lifts and you might be horrible with the dumbbell bench press, for example, even though your barbell bench press is really good. Of course, they correlate to some degree. But yeah, it's, it's very movement specific and especially for bodybuilding purposes and well, anyone that's not a power lifter really, yeah, I think it's more factual to look at your overall set of exercises rather than specifically the power lifts because you can really tweak that ratio and do one RMs and keep the power lifts in all the time. And then that's going to kind of inflate your powerlifting strength relative to the other exercises. But it doesn't mean that your overall progress is necessarily good just because the powerlifts are improving, um, mostly via presumably neural mechanisms. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, that's something that I think people also had question of is obviously the longer you diet, 
the more body fat you're losing, kind of the smaller you can end up being. Maybe you lose like some padding off your glutes and now your range of motion on like your bench press is maybe increased by a few centimeters. How much do you think kind of leverage change could play a role here where people maybe, sometimes I look at maybe like a Wilkes points because that like is a body weight relational to kind of how much you're lifting and maybe your Wilkes have maintained but not your kind of uh, overall lifts. So is there anything there that you think is valid or do you think that's people coping yeah, I mean, for powerlifting, it's obviously relevant. So if your like IBF score or your work score is is improving, and it should, I think powerlifters. That's another thing. Powerlifters uh, should compete if they really care about being competitive rather than their absolute strength. And again, I think people really overvalue the absolute numbers at the expense of their actual competitiveness because they aim for the absolutes inst instead of their IPF slash Wilk score. And you see that most people, when they diet, they should experience a significant increase in Wilk score. In fact, I would argue that for most powerlifters, the easiest way for them to become more competitive is to diet down to a very low body fat level because your strength to body weight ratio, which is what matters in the end on stage, will improve dramatically. But I think powerlifters are often very reluctant to do that because they, as soon as they experience any decrease in their absolute strength level, they freak out. And it's like, oh no, no, this, this is bad. This cannot be good. Whereas in reality, when you lose a little bit of strength, but you've lost 10 kilos of body weight, you can drop down a whole weight class or two, then it's most likely going to be very, very good for you. And there's a lot of research to support that. Now, by the way, I realized I didn't answer the other part of your question about the likelihood of muscle loss in energy deficit in general. Like I said, for highly advanced individuals, meaning like truly, truly advanced, not like you've been reading a lot of stuff on the internet and you're, you bench press two plates, like truly advanced individuals that are in really near their maximum genetic uh, potential, I think muscle loss is literally inevitable. I think it's with the, the likelihood of muscle loss decreases dramatically as you move further away from that genetic max. In fact, maybe even when you are a little bit less advanced, you're like 95, 90% of your max, you can already maintain muscle mass because maintenance of muscle mass is really easy compared to gaining it. But like generally speaking in research, if you look at volume required to maintain versus to gain, you're looking at like a third or less even. And in novice individuals and even intermediates, we see in most research that recomposition is possible. Also, in most of my clients, I see positive body recomposition. That's because most of them are not like 10-year experienced powerlifters and bodybuilders. Anyone that's just, even if they have been training for 10 years, which is very common, but they haven't been making the best gains, so they're not at you know 95% of their genetic um, presumable limits, then uh, you, you can often make... Um, very good results in terms of body recomposition. And the, that same meta-analysis that I referenced earlier found that it takes about a 500 calorie deficit in mostly intermediate level lifters to make muscle loss very difficult. Then it's usually just maintained. And obviously the likelihood of recomposition increases a lot when your program is better. If your nutrition is dialed in, uh, your diet's not overloaded, sleep, stress, everything, all the little factors, even micronutrients, all of these things, when you manage everything really well, it's much, much more feasible to recomp for uh, novice, intermediate lifters, and sometimes even in studies, competitors, just because they are competitors not, does not necessarily mean they're actually uh, close to their genetic max, because some people have really good genetics, and especially more bikini competitors and stuff, they're not necessarily there yet, even bodybuilders. Uh, also, some people just compete when they are not very competitive. So um, even competitors, sometimes we see in research, including a study from this year, actually, that people uh, recall. That's kind of crazy. I knew, like, thinking about the risk of muscle loss, I've always thought of it as relational to body fat, and that's the main thing, and, like, the size of deficit that you're running, and obviously everything else that goes into that, like sleep and optimal nutrient timing, all of those variables. And I hadn't really thought about the level of advancement playing a role, but it makes sense to me just thinking about it now, the more novice you are, the more likely you could gain muscle during a deficit. So the more advanced you are, the less likely you're going to do that and the more risk that you're losing muscle. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about it that way like you've just described it. Yeah, I think you you nailed it on the two big factors like body fat level and deficit are, I think, the big ones. But the third one I would name is the the feasibility of muscle growth in general because as you say anything that influences muscle growth is also going to influence muscle retention and then on the uh the wilk score slash leverage change do you think so 
if someone's losing numbers on their bench press or not gaining them, maybe it's stable. Is it a case of potentially it's that leverage influence and it's not a muscle loss factor? Do you think there's a hack? Is there a way of deciphering that or uh, do you think that is a factor to consider? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, it does seem that strength changes in energy deficit or fat gain. Um, so with either energy balance or change in, in body fat, even when there's not a lot of change in muscle mass, and it's un unlikely that that's explained by neural mechanisms. So basically when people are bulking, um, they gain strength easier. And in general, people at high body fat levels, even when their muscle mass is well, maybe not much higher, at least, it seems to have a relatively big effect on their strength. And I'm not sure what explains that. I think one factor might be recovery, because most of the time when we are in the gym, we're not fully recovered, like we're not peaked. And if you are, if you're, you're essentially, if you're in a bigger energy surplus, for example, your volume is not close to your MRV, then you're kind of continuously at your at your peak level. It's like you've done a taper. And most of the time when we are pushing more close to our MRV, we are, there is some level of fatigue that's suppressing our strength. I think that might be a factor. The actual leverage argument, I've heard it a lot, but I struggle to make a lot of sense of it because it takes, it takes very high body fat levels to like biomechanically affect your leverage in the squat, especially the bench press. Like, I mean, you're, you're talking about, there literally has to be, um, like, like force from the fat or like compression of the, the joints, right? It takes, it takes a lot of fat to, to, yeah. to make it so that just the amount of fat is, is making your arm flex less easily. It's not like you gain two kilos and you're, that happens. So yeah, I, I, I hear it a lot when people say like, yeah, your leverage is better. You get cushioning from the fat around the joints or whatever. Um, I don't know if that makes a lot of biomechanical sense. I think most of it's probably muscle growth. Like when people get to higher body fat levels, they also have higher muscle mass levels and they probably underestimate that effect. And especially they overestimate their muscle retention, especially in like super high level competitive powerlifters. So I would say that that is probably based on the current literature that's most in line with what we actually have data on. There is most likely an effect of on recovery of the energy uh, surplus. So generally being better recovered when bulking versus when cutting. Maybe also psychological effect. And then maybe maybe some leverage effect, but I I, I kind of struggle to see it. Like I, I like the theory kind of. It seems intuitively plausible in a way, but I don't think it... When you really think about it in biomechanical terms, it makes a lot of sense. Is there anything to, I'm thinking the place where maybe you lose the most is going to be around the waist. So your waist becomes smaller. I've had like weightlifting belts and I'm like, man, I can't even fit in this weightlifting belt anymore. It doesn't go any smaller. Mm. I need more holes. That kind of, your core is now not as stable. Do you think that could impact some of the, like, I don't know, an RDL or a squat where you're kind of more impacted by that? Could that influence it more, do you think? I mean, we still, we'd be talking about a lot of mass and fat mass, but like, why would it inherently make you more stable? I mean, it's, it's, maybe it's, it's centralizes your, um, your mass more, but it, it would be such a tiny effect, much smaller than what we see in practice. Yeah. You did mention kind of being under recovered. So like that kind of accumulative fatigue from the diet or you're going into sessions, especially at the end of prep, you're just glycogen depleted. Could you put that down to an argument of like short-term strength losses where you're not maybe losing muscle in that situation where it's just like you can't perform kind of what you were talking about there yeah i think most of it's even just neuromuscular we know for example that most lifters are essentially continuously in a state of edema and muscle damage that's also why when you stop lifting for even a few days you kind of look deflated and flat sometimes and that's mostly just water glycogen and the fact that muscles are no longer swollen which which causes the water retention you get that that full look, especially in the days after a workout, is just mostly swelling. And if you work out frequently with, say, at your MRV, then you are pretty much uh, permanently swollen. And well, that, that's not a problem actually, because it you know in the end you're still gaining muscle. Um, but yeah, you you can um, be in a higher or lower state of kind of permanent fatigue as a result of that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I guess my final question on this would be, so when you're taking clients through maybe even a contest prep, say at the start and then towards the end, and you're looking at their gym performance and your rate of loss, is there anything at the start of a prep, are you kind of looking for them again to be increasing strength, particularly on newer movements? Is there a point where you're like, 
uh, like, I don't know, a plateau of strength for a certain period of time or even some performance losses that you make any manipulations? Does that question make sense? Yeah, I always look at performance. In, in general, in my program design, performance is the number one criterion I look at for everything. So a lot of people, of my clients, they, they are kind of confused about my program design because they've, for example, they've been doing something for four weeks and they're like, isn't it time to switch things up? And I always say, well, don't fix it if it isn't broken. You're making great progress, you're recomping, gaining strength linearly pretty much across the board. I mean, I could change some things, but it's unlikely to make anything better. So better is we just keep collecting data and we progress exactly as we are. And the plateaus will come, unfortunately, I can guarantee that. And then we start switching things up. And as soon as things start plateauing, especially for bodybuilding purposes, I think in the relatively short term, you want to make changes, even if it's just mental, because in compass prep, in some competitors where you feel like sometimes I think, well, muscle loss is inevitable pretty much. And what we're doing now is kind of window dressing, but psychologically it can have a big effect that you, that you are progressing and that there is progressive overload as opposed to just grinding away against that same, you know, a hundred times nine, a hundred times nine, and you know that it's going to be a hundred times eight soon. And then seven, it's really mentally draining. Whereas you just switch to a new exercise then and you see the progression again, it, it at least feels a lot better. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I can say when I competed in 2017, I was changing exercises every like five weeks after my deload, I just like changed them. I think that actually bit me in the ass because I think I was, I thought, oh, I'm making, I was just making neurological adaptations, but I wasn't truly like training as hard as I think I should have. So I've kind of been like, hey, I agree with you that you don't want to just keep grinding away at it. And you're like, oh, geez, I've dropped like two, three reps on this lift now. Like I just I would rotate it for sure at that point. But I think there's also this middle ground where you said you don't want to change stuff too readily because mm. you like you want to. It's hard enough to train with uh, a kind of calorie deficit and in contest prep anyway. But if you have like numbers you're trying to hold on to for a period of time, that can be quite like good to keep you working hard enough in the gym. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think rotating exercises should generally be a last resort, especially if it's for the bigger lifts that serve as the benchmarks, like lateral raise, cable lateral raise, I don't care about. Like yes. as a benchmark, it's it's useless, you know. But squat, bench press, those kind of lifts, I, I like to keep them in as long as possible. It's it's only in those scenarios where I know that muscle loss is basically inevitable, super advanced competitor going in deep stages of prep. And you can already see it starting to stagnate. Then I'm like, okay, let's switch it out because we know what's going to happen. There's no need to actually undergo it to, to verify it in this case. But most for most people listening, it's definitely the case that I think they should keep exercises in more than they do and look at more long-term progression and look at their actual data and make sure that you have these kind of benchmark lifts in your program as much as possible so that you can see what the, the long-term trends are. And then sure, you can switch out the, the accessory and the isolation exercises a lot more, but try to keep those ex the big exercises in there. And also across bulk and cut phases, if you see that your, your squat kind of goes up and down patterns, but every new bulk, you had a new PR, that's a great sign. And if you don't have those data, it becomes a lot more difficult to verify whether you're actually long-term making gains. Yeah, no, I see that too. And another issue I was just going to say, if you keep in lifts and you are trying to hold those numbers, sometimes you end up digging yourself into this just fatigue hole because you get so psychologically like ramped up or you mm -hmm. change your technique, you maybe injure yourself. It's like, hey, you would have just been better rotating out that hack squat for, I don't know, a leg press or something that you haven't been doing where you can kind of slowly build that back up. So I think that's where the art of coaching like you were kind of talking about here makes sense. Like so you, you're communicating to your lifter and they kind of understand and you understand where they're at with things. Yeah, definitely. What the uh, the fatigue, by the way, is something I've been thinking about a lot, especially since my back injury and switch kind of away from strength training and more towards bodybuilding plus kickboxing. It's the enormous fatigue that squats and deadlifts specifically impose upon somebody. And I don't know what exactly causes it. It's surely in part it's muscle mass, but it seems to be disproportional to even the amount of muscle mass involved. If I think of how long it takes most people to do five sets of heavy squats compared to how many other sets of exercises you can do in that time frame, it's it's really a disproportionate amount of fatigue. And I suspect it's the isometric loading of the back maybe combined with the compress compressive force because there's, there doesn't seem to be anything that doesn't have that compressive force that results in that amount of fatigue. And I don't know if it's the 
just the sheer kind of terror of the heavy weight on your back and knowing it's injurious, plus coordinating all of that muscle mass and doing a relatively tactical exercise, plus the kind of cardio-respiratory stimulus. But even if you look at all those factors, you do, for example, high rep Bulgarian split squats, also absolutely terrifying, <laughs> but not, not as much as, say, 20 rep Widowmaker squats. Leg press, not, not even close. So I think there is something to the, the spinal loading element that really makes it um, particularly draining mentally. I guess maybe is that where, especially in a dieting phase, you'd either consider rotating those out or uh, I don't know if you've ever tried this where you like pre-fatigue. So you go into those lifts, you're using less load on the back. I know a lot of bodybuilders like doing that sort of thing. Yeah, you, you could. Um, and interesting, I think pre-fatiguing is also... Um, I don't do it that much because I am a proponent of maximizing total work output. So exercise selection in a way that you maximize the total work output of the, the, um, the training session. And any, even if a 5% decrease in deadlift or squat volume can, because the total work output is so high per rep in a squat or a deadlift, may actually has a big impact. So if you basically fatigue the legs too much, for example, and during a deadlift, that makes the entire rest of the posterior chain not be as much of a limiting factor, then it would be kind of a loss. Um, I don't know if it also makes it much easier mentally. Um, I, I have actually tried doing, for example, curls before um, squats and deadlifts. And interestingly, that seems to be kind of free, um, free time use because curls have zero impact on my squats and deadlifts. And if I do them beforehand, they also result in essentially zero fatigue mentally. And then I do the squats later and I'm destroyed so after that everything goes slower yeah. i've actually been experimenting a little bit with doing more of the other exercise before squats and deadlifts and i think it might be more time effective but it's a it's a subtle balance because like i said as soon as you start hurting your squats slash deadlift because you did curls and you know triceps work then the, the risk reward quickly becomes negative yeah i i see what you're saying and i have experienced myself as well where especially if you have that lift first, it's just like everything after that for the whole session. Like when you get to, I've been doing calves first in like my sessions and it doesn't impact my squat work at all. And then if anything, it allows me to get more depth. And it's like, mm -hmm. wow, I actually get to properly train my calves now. Whereas at the end of workouts, I was always like, even like my knees would just struggle to maintain a straight position because my quad was fatigued. It's like, man, this just makes so much sense to put it first. <laughs> yeah, calves are also interesting. Do you find that calf work fatigues your uh, squats or lifts? Not really, no. Yeah, for me also, it's a marginal effect. Hamstrings, I can also train for squats, no effect, yeah. sometimes even improvements, like subjectively, not actually objectively in terms of performance. Um, so that, yeah, that's interesting that uh, some muscles you can actually fatigue a lot more than we tend to uh, think. And in general, with exercise ordering, I think people are far too rigid and they lose a lot of time because they are really forcing their one exercise, rest interval, one more set, rest interval, one more set, and then it takes like 15 minutes per exercise. Whereas in reality, you can mix exercises that are that we think are too related, like bicep curls and shoulder pulls, for example, or face pulls. So yes, there is biceps involvement in flies and face pulls and like, but you can mix that with flies or curls. I mean, and it's really not going to affect your total workout, but significantly unless you do them right after each other, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense because a lot of people are they're following programs and they're like, hey, what if the thing I wanted to do first isn't free? Can I do this? It's like. It's like you mentioned, yeah. yeah, some things you can like, like calves, you can pretty much put them anywhere. I found for a lot of people delts a lot of the time they can go anywhere, but yeah, you wouldn't want to do, I don't know, your RDLs if your squats were meant to be first and quads are a priority for you. Now that's going to have an impact. So I think that flexibility discussion is important because yeah, people will, like you said, hang around for like, I don't know, the session takes three hours, but in reality, it could have taken half an hour. <laughs> yeah. And I also, um, what I also like about experimenting like this is that I think that the acute neuromuscular fatigue is probably one of the best measures we have of how much an exercise trains a muscle. For example, a lot of people, I think, were under the impression that hip thrust basically don't train the quads at all. And I think they really do. In fact, in a recent study on hip thrust versus quads, we saw that the growth in the quads is about half of that of the glutes, which is substantial. It's the same uh, growth that the biceps get in a row, roughly speaking. Wow. Yeah. So that's clearly something that counts and i mean a lot of people it, it, it varies but a lot of well i for example really feel the quads when i hit thrust and obviously it depends the closer you put the um your ankles to your butt 
the more you get a squat-like squat -like pattern and you evolve the quads more. Whereas if you put the ankles far away and it becomes more of a straight leg kind of hip extension, you activate the hamstrings more. But for the standard vertical uh, tibia uh, type uh, hip thrust, there is very significant quad involvement. And you can notice that if you do leg extensions after your hip thrust, for example. So I've, I've experimented a lot with both, and there is a very significant decrease in my leg extension performance if I do hip thrust before that. I think that if you see patterns like that, it's actually a really good indication of which muscles are truly the limiting factor. For example, with shoulder pulls, and you can do biceps curls, no effect on performance. You know, okay, that's basically a trivial stimulus for the biceps. And given that we don't have a whole lot of studies on which muscles are actually worked the most by certain exercises, we have biomechanics to go on, but in terms of practical experience, I think the acute fatigue is one of the best things to go by. And interestingly, I don't think a lot of people use that information. No, something I, I haven't really heard that being spoken about, but it makes a lot of sense. But something I think I have heard you speak about, which seems similar, is that kind of set-to-set uh, -set rep drop-off from an exercise, where mm -hmm. if you're seeing quite big rep drop-offs, you're probably creating a lot of fatigue and hopefully local fatigue, especially if it's an isolation-based movement, you can almost guarantee it within that muscle. And it will probably also indicate, I think you said, that like the volume tolerance, therefore, like you don't need much more volume there if you're creating, if you're seeing that big of a performance drop-off set-to-set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still like doing that, uh, going by work capacity or as researchers call it, the fatigue index to see how much your reps drop off. And you can think of it in two ways. One, it actually measures the amount of neuromuscular fatigue. So at a certain point, you know, the risk reward or the stimulus to fatigue becomes really poor. And even if you would question, okay, is it true that if I'm fatigued, the stimulus becomes less? Well, there's also research that the muscle activity decreases. But also if you simply think of it on a biomechanical basis, if you are doing sets of two reps at a certain point, that's simply not a lot of tension you're still imposing on the muscle. So you're literally just not accumulating a lot of um, stimulus in that set, also biomechanically speaking. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And with that, have you found um, that in higher rep sets, you see a bigger rep drop off. Like I found on my lower rep sets, quite often I maybe drop two between and I'm staying at a similar kind of proximity to failure. Whereas my high rep stuff, it might see like a four reps drop off and then it is like two, two, two. I don't know why that happens, but I've just mm -hmm. noticed it time and time again. Yeah, I think that that is um, like a reality of things that uh, high rep work and lower intensity training in general induces more neuromuscular fatigue. It's a super counterintuitive thing, but very reliably observed in research. And you can also observe it yourself. Also mentally, like, uh, you know, yes, a free RM in a squat is heavy, very mentally draining, but uh, 15 RM is a whole different ballgame. So it, it makes sense for, for two reasons. One is that when you do a set of 15 RM, by the end of the set, you're so fatigued, you cannot lift your 15 RM anymore if you're going to failure. That's objectively more fatigued than not being able to lift your free RM anymore. And also, again, biomechanically, the total work output is a lot higher. And we know the total work output is also quite strongly correlated with total amount of fatigue. We also see it in endurance training research, for example. So I think it, it makes a lot of sense that high rep work is very counterintuitive, but actually very sensible. High rep work is more fatiguing than low rep work. Yeah, I think it's that's definitely something I've seen kind of said and in some way, like I, I don't know, 
Like with some lifts, it definitely feels that way. Actually, no, I guess it does feel that way. It's just some lifts, it's impractical to lift low reps. Like you can't lift low, like below 10 reps on like a leg extension. I don't know how practical mm-hmm. lateral raise. It starts to become a little bit like not like not something you can do. But if you consider, I guess, 10 to 20 versus 20 to 30 on a leg extension, yeah, that, that 20 to 30 starts to sound pretty fatiguing. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people also, they, they don't go to failure on the 30 RM stuff because they might go to failure on the HRM stuff, in part because it is more fatiguing. They don't go to failure on the higher rep stuff. But sometimes you can really see if you haven't done it, you really have to push yourself to a new level because there's that rep where normally you would feel like that is probably the last one. And then you can just keep grinding for like 10 reps more. Yeah, especially on a leg extension, you're just getting to like the burn territory. And it's like, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. there's 10 more reps whilst it's burning. <laughs> like this is going to be hell. Uh, is there anything to, I guess... With the heavier loads, they it's more axial loading maybe at that point. So you could argue, hey, what if we're using lighter loads? We're getting less of that axial fatigue. Do you think that plays into it at all? Maybe, um, because in between reps for a squat, for example, you you still have to wait on your back. But generally speaking, for like the connective tissues, at least for like joint health, high reps are a lot easier on the joints than on lower reps. Like anecdotally, at least we very clearly see that. It, there's a lot less pain and people that are injured they can often do an exercise with for high reps without pain but at a certain training intensity certain load it becomes painful so i don't know if that makes a difference with like subjective fatigue yeah i guess it's that like yeah like you said it's the joint and ligament fatigue versus like the neuromuscular fatigue and and I guess that I'm pretty sure your perspective is use a wide range of rep ranges because I know some people are like hey high reps are very fatiguing so just do low reps. It's like, hey, like there's benefits to using a combination here. Yeah, I would also, I would almost always recommend a combination. And I think especially joint health is super undervalued because a lot of people, basically any lifter, runs into injuries at a certain point, except the most genetically blessed individuals. Um, most people, they, they will run into injuries, tendinopathy and stuff. And they will take that as a sign that that volume is too much. And that volume is only too much with the current configuration of your program right now. It might be a result of your nutrition, your training, your lifestyle, and in particular, your exercise selection. And I think exercise selection and in training intensity have a huge effect. Because for me, for example, if you give me heavy squats and bench presses, and you're going to do those decent frequency, decent volume, I'm going to get elbow and knee injuries really quickly. And you can probably quadruple that volume if you have me do a lot of cable work, a lot of different exercises for all high reps. And yes, there is more neuromuscular fatigue, but I can still handle a lot more total volume because the neuromuscular fatigue, I think, is much less of a true limiting factor for most individuals than, uh, first of all, just mental total capacity for volume. And probably secondly, uh, injury, um, like injury um, MRV, if you will. And then thirdly, is the truly the neuromuscular system for most individuals, the limiting factor. Yeah, that makes sense. And on that note, something that's just cropped into my head, I don't know if it's ever been looked into, is like the length of time you spend in the eccentric. Uh, obviously, the slower eccentric you do, the less load you're going to be able to do for the certain number of reps. Is there any da- like data looking into using different eccentric speeds and trying to like maximize a stimulus to fatigue ratio? Mm. For muscle growth, it, it usually doesn't matter in most studies. So that would mean that you indeed have this variable to play with in terms of stimulus to fatigue, because even if muscle growth is indirectly affected, it might be the case that you can handle more volume if you do your eccentrics a little bit more slowly. Uh, there is one study by the Brazilians from Pereira et al. that found a trend for greater benefits with two versus one seconds during curls, if I remember correctly. And that basically just means don't let the weight free fall. Like you, you actually have to control it. Uh, I think there's pretty much consensus about that. Uh, other than that, the eccentric duration doesn't seem to affect a whole lot. You do fewer reps slower, or you do more reps faster. Where it impacts the stimulus to fatigue ratio, I do think it impacts it um, for the connective tissues. I wouldn't really call that fatigue, by the way. Like It's more damage or wear and tear, degradation of the tissue. Sure. Um, yeah, a lot of people do call it fatigue. So it, it probably makes the exercise less injurious. To do them a bit more controlled and slowly in, in rehab circles eccentrics are super popular even eccentric only training there's not a lot of 
good research truly establishing that it is superior, but anecdotally, based on like how popular it is and how well tolerated it is by individuals, I do think it's a bit less injurious in general to control your weights more. And the eccentric is the best part to do that because if you do it on the concentric, you sacrifice a lot of strength gains and possibly long-term, even some muscle growth research on that is um, most research doesn't find short-term effects, but the effects on strength are very noticeable of slow reps. There was a recent meta-analysis that confirmed this again. So yeah, the eccentric and pauses as well would be the places to incorporate this. And yeah, I would say that it's better on the, in terms of injury tolerance to control the weights more. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I know, I think I've, I've number of physios i've spoken to like in this space like they recommend like when you are injured to slow the eccentric pause mm -hmm. even i have done that on hack squats where it was actually in prep i ended up causing my knee like a bit of a a tweak because probably i was trying to hold on to loads and i just let my eccentrics get too fast so i was like hey i'll keep hacks in but i'll just let the tempo i'll, I'll slow it down by a couple of seconds and pause in the hole and i was like hey presto that's that's now fine is there a certain amount of eccentric that is too slow and in addition to that, do you have like a preferred tempo that you do you prescribe a tempo or do you give like a recommendation to your clients? Generally, I use just control eccentric, explosive concentric, and I typically recommend like split second pause to ensure that you do get that full range of motion and really also you decelerate the weight, which kind of emphasizes the eccentric. Because if you, if you bounce, basically you don't fully decelerate until you accelerate then you're kind of understimulating the eccentric. And we know that the eccentric is more stimulating, especially at long muscle lengths than the concentric, in large part simply because you're doing, um, you're capable of doing more work, like muscles are stronger, they can produce more force, more tension during the eccentric phase than the concentric phase. So um, yeah, that's my general tempo recommendation. I think what you did is a really good application of using uh, advanced programming to increase your MRV essentially. And not just accept that or or think that, oh, I cannot sustain this volume because I got injured. Like you can sustain the volume if you modify your program intelligently. That's exactly what we uh, talked about. And in those cases, uh, it can make sense. The big problem with slowed eccentrics is tracking progress. So if you do it for uh, a standard, um, like your, your primary squat, bench press and stuff, are you really progressing in strength or are you just not slowing down the eccentric as much? And that's, I think, monitoring progress for, for my methods is super important because progress determines all the modifications I do for the program. So that's actually a big deal. Even if theoretically it's, it doesn't influence muscle growth, it does influence your ability to monitor and adapt your program. Super slow eccentrics might become detrimental, but you would have to go like insanely slow. Like for the concentric, it's very clear that it is the case. Uh, I think the 10 second reps were in Brad Schoenfeld's met or, or Greek sick meta analysis. They were a bit worse also for hypertrophy. Also, it just becomes really difficult to truly train to failure when you're doing like 10 second repetitions. Um, but I think it's the concentric only. The eccentric is never really going to be the problem in that regard, I think. I think that's really well explained and the point you made about kind of uh, standardizing that eccentrics like if you try and go slow and then you maybe you speed up as you're getting closer to failure or as you're trying to progress things that's something I've ran into time and time again and I found actually it's really interesting I was just uh, squatting on a different hack squat this past weekend and I was like hey maintaining a like four five second eccentric on this one's easy my hack squat if i try and maintain that it's just it's much more vertical there's way less uh kind of friction within the machine so it's just like if i try and maintain that when i try and go to failure like i know i'm just i end up speeding up by like two seconds when i'm really fighting not to whereas this one it wasn't so i found like you can't just have this standardized recommendation and i, I like your kind of general rule of just like make sure you control the weight down nice and steadily rather than like strict ones because at least from what i gather can differ a bit mm -hmm. person to person if you go too slow then yeah quite like easily you end up ramping up that eccentric speed without you kind of noticing necessarily yeah definitely and also per exercise not just per individual but also per exercise because hack squats lend themselves quite well to slow eccentrics but try leg extensions like that top part it's almost impossible that when you reach the top the weight just kind of falls down yeah it's yeah. super difficult to really control that that first part usually it kind of drops down the first part and then you can control it a bit but it almost never will be a truly controlled like linear decrease from top to bottom 
Yeah, no, I've definitely, I agree. And I think your note on standardization is, is important as well, because yeah, it's just something that people don't think about and they end up like, Hey, I had this split second pause and now like I'm bouncing out of the hole or whatever it might be. So that makes tons of sense in terms of standardization. Actually, I wasn't, uh, this wasn't a direction I was intending to go, but it's a question that's comes up now and then is rest times. I think we might've spoken about it before. And I think you are actually in favor of trying to standardize rest times. You don't just kind of auto regulate those a lot of people uh, and actually tends to be my recommendation is like, hey, go when that target muscle is going to be the limiting factor and you feel you can perform well. Obviously, that doesn't want to be taken to ludicrous extremes, but that tends to be my recommendation. So like week one and on a hack squat, it might be two, three minutes. But by the time you're in like week five, you're training to failure maybe and you're all out volumes, it might go up to like don't know, a five minute rest time. Is that something? What, what are your kind of recommendations there? I do also like to auto regulate. Even though I'm known as like the data guy, this is an area where I feel that um, going by hard numbers is actually very difficult and possibly even counterproductive. In the first review that I did together with Brad Schoenfeld on rest intervals, where we challenged the traditional idea that short short rest intervals are better for hypertrophy, and the research actually kind of pointed in the other direction, which we now know is, is true, longer rest intervals improve muscle growth by virtue of allowing you to do more work. I think. What's your question? Uh, oh, yes, what is, what are your recommendations for rest times? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So based on that research, we actually we posited that you could probably just auto-regulate your rest intervals because uh, there was a, one study at the time which found that most people do it quite well and they intuitively um, get a much higher work output than if they um, set at least I think it was two minutes rest intervals or something, which is not super short, but also pretty, pretty common to use. Subsequent research showed that people rest a bit too long when they auto-regulate, and I think that's that's very true. If you really want, you can cut a minute out of most of your sets probably and get the same work done, but it's more effortful. And um, excessive resting becomes a little bit worse throughout the session. At the end of the session when you're fatigued, people start to excessively rest a bit too much or uh, extra too much, if you will. And I think that that's also very, very, um, um, you, you can see it in yourself very well, uh, anyone that's, uh, that that happens. Um, but that aside, it's only really a problem of using a little bit uh, too much time. So it's a little bit time inefficient, but it still works super well for muscle hypertrophy and strength development purposes. People tend to have a pretty good idea of how well rested they are and their readiness to perform is a pretty good marker of how well they can actually perform. You could use heart rate, that's also been used, but I mean, then you have to check, track your heart rate and also uh, you have to kind of find your own benchmark because you know, different individuals um, have very different recoveries of their heart rates, which also depend a lot on your cardiovascular fitness rather than your just muscle mass and stuff. So it, it just becomes needlessly complicated and auto-regulation works quite well, automatically takes care of the, the, um, the sex difference, for example, that women typically don't need nearly as much rest as men, and they also intuitively don't rest nearly as much. Uh, strength level, where more advanced lifters need more rest, typically, because they can basically fatigue themselves more per set than more novice lifters. And novice lifters... You can find them enthusiastically bouncing around the gym and more hardcore lifters, like more advanced lifters at least. After a heavy set of squats, they, they have to sit down and be like, yeah. okay, five minutes before the next one. So it, it makes a lot of sense that just auto-regulation in this aspect just works very well. That makes so much sense to me. And the the way I always came at it as well, I'm glad, I don't know where I got that you weren't that way. I think maybe the you like your standardization, which I think a lot of practitioners do, and I think it makes sense. But here it was mm -hmm. like, hey, this is standardization for the sake of standardization that might take away from stimulus. Like what we're trying to drive is stimulus to the muscle, not just, hey, you, did you rest two minutes? If you're now like causing a cardiovascular adaptation because your breathing's limiting you, not the quads, that's now not what we're in here for. So uh, that makes tons of sense and also what you said in terms of people taking maybe a bit too much particularly towards the end of the session but like you said it's just if people are like hey i'm taking too long in the gym maybe then they time it and then also question themselves am i ready to go and that's like the best of both if they've got a time limit but otherwise if you've got plenty of time in the gym there's no worries there which is cool yeah even for saving time i feel that it's more important to just be strict with yourself and kind of push that limit of where normally you feel ready for maximal performance again, you kind of push that down to almost ready for maximal performance. And there are two studies by uh, D'Souza et al, 
that find that if you do that gradually, you can improve your work capacity to the extent that you can actually have far shorter rest intervals and still the same total work output. Obviously, there is a limit to this. It's not like you can do every squats one minute rest because you're super well conditioned. But I can also say that now with kickboxing, my conditioning is so much better that I can basically bounce from one exercise to the next while just barely catching my breath or not even fully catching my breath. I'm basically high heart rate, high breathing rate the whole session, as long as I don't do squats or deadlifts or an exercise like that. As long as it's only isolation work and, you know, not um, like lap prayers is fine, rows are fine, bench press is fine. When it comes to like split squats, squats, deadlifts, then yeah, it's uh, I do need a lot more rest. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, your right eye that's slightly bruised, right? Is that, am I right in saying that or is it not? <laughs> and yeah, I've just... <laughs> it's, um, yeah, one of them, yeah. That yeah. one, it looked like it maybe was this slightly one. swollen from kickboxing. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we've got time for this. Hopefully we have. It actually loops back around to the start question where we're talking about kind of uh, losing strength and that, or rather not gaining strength and maybe losing muscle mass and talking about rate of loss because you also had a post on protein modified sparing fasts and you had like an equation, how to work out your calories. And this brought about just a question to me of like, how fast can we lose fat at like various times we kind of talked about obviously having your kind of stuff in check in terms of nutrition sleep and all of that obviously body fat as well and then you mentioned level of advancement i don't know if there's a time component to this as well but how did you kind of come to the kind of maybe calorie equation that you came to in that and then is that spe specific for protein modified sparing fast and yeah uh, i'm kind of interested in how you come to like your chosen rate of mm -hmm. loss for an individual yeah so i mean those those are definitely that's a simplified model in general, the most important thing to know is that the higher your body fat level, the less likelihood of, the lower the likelihood of muscle loss, and therefore the bigger you can push the energy deficit. So you, the higher your body fat level, the more aggressively you can diet. That's well established now, I think. And the difference is, is massive. In contest prep, we see that any excessive deficit will very quickly result in muscle loss. In obese individuals, there is now good evidence, including, I think, even two meta-analyses that find that the rate of weight loss has no effect on muscle loss. So obese individuals can basically just lose fat as quickly as, as, as they can. And the only constraint is what practically they can, they can do. And then as they get to healthier body fat levels, that's going to... Uh, be a lower rate of fat loss that they can sustain, you know, then when they get to overweight, healthy body fat levels, then you do have to pay attention to the actual energy deficit. There is such a thing as too much, but it's still, it's still big. Like research on, I think, um, Miro et al. looked at overweight individuals and they compared like 40 versus 50% energy deficit. And they found it, the 50 was definitely pushing it, but I mean, it's 50% deficit. And if we compare that in a recent study, found that in relatively lean, strength-trained women uh, also doing concurrent exercise. They compared, uh, kind of unintentionally, but 20 versus 50% deficit, I think it was. And 20% uh, was a lot better. Even just for one week, one week diet, the 50% energy deficit already resulted in muscle loss and really bad effects on hormonal health and performance and stuff. So when you get to basically level where you can see some apps, especially in men, then you need to be a lot more careful and even short-term diets like PSMF diet, um, you would have to do it for a matter of days. Like the mini cut would be truly mini, mini um, in the sense of not, not two weeks, which is kind of the common since Lama Donald popularized the PSMF um, approach. Two weeks is, is way too long, I think, for most uh, lean lifters. So I typically go by, like in the post, I say, just as a super rough measure, if you see any apps at all, like any app definition, then you need to limit it to 2% of body weight loss which can often be just a few days for most individuals because the weight's gonna come flying off. And basically, as soon as you, you get the first whoosh and a little bit more fat loss, you pretty much have to stop it and you have to go to something more conservative. And if you don't have no app definition at all, or for women, you have to really think of, um, either just think of it as 25% body fat-ish, that the, the, um, the cutoff point roughly, or like any, any app definition in favorable lighting with, um, um, with belly dancing movements, whatever, that you, um, you see something. Because women often, especially if they don't train the app, they don't have like the six pack that men have. Um, but yeah, 25% roughly is going to be that cutoff point where you even, even PSMF would have to be um, just a few days rather than a week or two weeks. So that's the most important thing. Just really 
slowing it down as you get leaner. And as for the exact numbers, I like to do, even for a protein sparing modified fast, I found just by looking at a lot of client meal plans that 8.3 times protein, uh, the, funny enough, that's, that's the kind of two thresholds that worked quite neatly, may, maybe due to the inherent ratios of protein to calories that you see in chicken and white fish and those kind of foods that you commonly eat. 8.3 times protein seems to be the point where it, it's just impossible to make meal plans that are not absolutely brutal and malnourishing. So that's in any scenario I consider the, the minimum. And then 9.7 times, or if you just want to make it easy, 10 times protein is basically the point where I think for a lot of people it already becomes very difficult. And you really have to sacrifice, you, you have to go down to just the super lean protein sources plus veggies. So that's more for, especially PSMF for um, individuals with that are already very lean or people that in general don't want to just be absolutely miserable during the PSMF. And then most researchers would barely call that a PSMF anymore because you are you might still be at 100 or $1,500 calories for a guy. Um, whereas most researchers even are happy to recommend 600 to 800 calories during a PSMF diet. Uh, but yeah, I do think that even during a PSMF diet, even if it's only one week or something, um, you want that, that minimum level of vegetables, micronutrients, protein, essential fatty acids. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, that's where I was kind of coming from with uh, with the aggressiveness of the diet. You have to take into consideration the time component because if it's super aggressive and you're already in like, don't know, all these other factors, like you said, you're lean and more advanced, maybe these sort of factors, you're going to have to do it for a very, very constrained period of time. Um, it, it just brings me a question. There's, I don't know if you've seen it. It's called an Alpert paper. I haven't read it. Uh, it was a limit on the energy transfer from the human fat store to hyperphagia. And I've heard Is a few new? people. It's not new at all. No, no, no. It's been around oh, a yeah. while. Um, but it kind of tried to give a, a number, calorie number. I think it was 22 or it might have been changed to 30. It's in around this number of calories per day of body fat was the fastest that fat could be liberated. So it's like you can't go faster than that. Uh, does that have any, you, like, is that something you take into consideration? Is that anything that plays a role here? I remember looking at this a while ago. I don't remember what the, um, like, the methodological limitations were. But my conclusion from that was that, in practice, there is actually no limit. Sure. And we also see in, in research that basically the bigger the deficit, the faster the fat loss. And overweight, obese individuals, like I said, you can literally just go as low as you can. The threshold, if anything, seems to be more um like 800 calories or fewer like there are some analyses that show no difference between 600 and 800 calories per day in fat loss but it's very difficult to say if that really is a physiological thing or if that's just um like an inherent adherence issue which usually is the case yeah. with these matters and even if there is a limit it's going to scale with total body fat mass so the more fat you have the more body fat um the energy your body can liberate from the fat so it will still um, scale to the extent that the higher your body fat level, the faster you can lose it. Yeah, this is where I think some people use, uh, I know Martin McDonald, uh, Greg Knuckles, I think Lyle McDonald maybe used that paper to come about with equations where they kind of were like, hey, you can uh, divide your body fat by 20 and that gives you like a percent rate of loss that you could lose by uh, or something along those lines so and when i look across like uh, between individuals it tends to most people land at like hey you're 15 percent. that's around a one percent rate of loss that you can get away with and then it scales down as you get leaner to i know in the kind of recommendations for bodybuilders that helms put out it's like 0.5 to like 0.25 as you're getting like towards the end of prep so scaling it towards body fat essentially and not being kind of ludicrous unless you're way obese then it sounds like you can kind of get away with with anything there but i know we're we're coming to time here menno so i don't want to uh, stretch that too far but this has been a lot of fun uh, thank you for taking the time uh if people want to kind of see what you're up to have you got anything going on that people should know about uh where should they head uh well new things that probably are out by the time this comes out is um, going on spotify and apple podcasts um in large part the same as my youtube videos but maybe i'll also do some unique content i'm probably not going to do like an actual podcast like like yours but more videos of me discussing things um maybe with my team or something but uh, i'm not going to do a podcast where i invite people but i am going to be on spotify and apple podcasts and probably will be by the time this comes out in addition to youtube which i'm now doing for about a year going pretty well 
And other than that, yeah, you can find all my content on menowensomals.com. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure that's linked because I think people enjoy hearing what you have to say. So if they can get more menow in their ears, I'm sure they'll be there. So we'll definitely get your YouTube uh, link below. And maybe by the time yeah, by the time this comes out, you'll definitely be live with those. So either people will need to search or maybe we can get that link added at the time. So yeah, thank you so much, menow Thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you soon. Take care. Pleasure as always. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicut movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.